Hey everyone, quick announcement before we jump in. First of all, sorry for the very irregular upload schedule. Both Max and I had a lot on our plates, uh, both privately, and you know, that should always have priority. But then also, <laughs> the rest of the time was very, very booked with stuff at work. We tried to do a better job going forward and think we found a good system for recording our episodes from now on. And we still like the, the feedback. We are very happy for everyone who asks us when we are finally back to regular rhythm. And we're trying to, to do our best to be to be back and to be back more regularly in your podcast feeds. And now enjoy the episode with Eli. Eli is a great founder, a very genuine person, and then also just a super smart guy. And you will hear all of that in the episode. He is backed by both Cavalry Ventures, which is a German VC, and then also by the Operator Exchange. And he's building a very interesting company in the travel space, which you might think, okay, travel, COVID, how did that work? But there will be a lot of interesting talking points in here, and I think you will enjoy it. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we have another guest, um, Mike and I are on board, and we want to introduce uh, Eli. Welcome uh, to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Super excited to chat with you guys. Likewise. How are you doing? Doing good. Just uh, enjoying my little vacation in Costa Rica right now. It's uh, one of the you know perks of being in a travel tech company. So very happy. <laughs> did you use your own company though to, 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 to make the booking or how did it work? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's just like, I love travel. I've been traveling for my entire life. Uh, I've lived around the world, um, you know, as I was growing up as a kid and, uh, it just kind of stuck and I just can't stop. And, you know, the, the, one of the, the core things of who I am is, is just traveling and I love it. And I don't want to, I want to make it easier. I want to make it better. Um, so I ran some challenges uh, a few years ago, got annoyed with it and I pulled the plug and said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to solve the problem myself. I don't have patience. Awesome. Yeah, we're gonna cover. We cover you. We're gonna cover your your, your startup origin. Uh, definitely, definitely in a bit. But um, maybe for all the listeners, maybe you can give kind of a couple of sentences on on who you are, uh, what you did in the past, which is of course also super exciting, and and what you're working on right now. And then we will have different venues that we can go into and and deep dive into. But maybe we, um, maybe you can shortly introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, so let's see, about a decade ago, I was um, a PhD researcher in astrophysics um, and absolutely loved it. So I specialized in star formation. Um, and that's where my um, my relationship with tech really started to build, uh, just because um, astrophysics requires a lot of large data analysis and so forth. So like kind of the whole notion of big data has been around in astrophysics forever. Uh, like some of the images that you work with literally are terabytes in size. Um, and they're just gigantic. So, you know, putting that on a really, really low end budget academic computer and then doing some analysis, you got to get pretty resourceful. Um, and I ended up writing some really phenomenal, uh, I wouldn't say phenomenal, but I'd say really fun library packages in Python. This was when Python programming language was still kind of early, early days. And astronomy didn't really pick it up yet. Um, and I happened to bump into this really good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Tom Robitaille. We both ended up writing two packages. Um, it became some of the most heavily used packages in all of astronomy, still to this day. Um, one's called AstroPy, the other one's got Apple Pie, it's a plotting library. 
Um, and that kind of led me to getting invited to write a book on SciPy and NumPy. These are two numerical Python libraries in Python. Um, and I got my first taste of what the startup and tech community was like. That's when I was, you know, starting to interface. This is through O'Reilly, by the way. So O'Reilly Media asked me to write this book. Um, and I just kind of got that connection with the tech community, uh, you know, abroad that was outside of astrophysics. And I absolutely loved it. At the same time, I was writing my PhD thesis and I was writing the book. And I kind of constantly felt my, you know, felt, I found myself going back to the book every time just because I loved the, the energy, the pace, the speed. Um, and that was kind of, I would say, my gateway drug uh, to the startup world. Um, and so shortly afterwards, um, about a year and a half later, I found myself in San Francisco. And maybe you want to kind of give a couple of, of course, we name dropping itself is, is not the mm -hmm. right idea, but maybe you can kind of give a couple of hints on where you worked for, uh, what you worked for, which kind of companies you worked for, um, in which yeah. kind of roles. I think that would be interesting. So uh, let me see. So after I moved to San Francisco, this was back in 2013, um, I ended up working for, so it's actually primarily San Francisco and then uh, a short stint in Seattle. Um, for four amazing companies. One was Stitch Fix, another one was Netflix, um, Convoy, super hot startup, um, multi-billion dollar valuation as well, um, and then Apple. So all very different companies, different cultures, different you know, technology solutions and, and services and so forth. Um, but they all had a common core, which was um, data is pivotal to the success. Um, so Stitch Fix, I was very, very lucky to enter Stitch Fix at an early stage. Have you guys heard of Stitch Fix, by the way? Yeah, I know. Okay. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so Stitch Fix is, you know, kind of like this high-touch styling company um, for clothing. Um, and, you know, when I, when, uh, when Eric Colson, who was the chief algorithms officer back then, reached out to me for about it, he uh, kind of tricked me into it because he was using my book as a, a leverage to say, hey, you want to give a presentation? And then we met for coffee and then he's like, actually, I'm just trying to recruit you. I was like, ah, that's, that's, you, you played me well. I, I should try that. That's a, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good one. Like if you want to, if you want to get someone who's really passionate about this stuff, go pick on what they love and then pull them in. Um, recruiting, so, recruiting one-on-one -on -one tips. Yeah. Recruiting one-on-one. -on -one. I learned that from him. He's a phenomenal <laughs> recruiter. Um, so I, I got this opportunity to work at Stitch Fix. It took a while to convince me. Um, But once I was in, I realized how amazing of a place it was in terms of the data ecosystem. Uh, and it was a new business model uh, where, you know, if you were to tell someone back then, like, hey, we're going to make a high touch service that's super scalable, people would be like, that's impossible. You can't have a high touch service that's scalable at the same time. It's one or the other. Right. And then uh, they're implementing something called human loop machine learning, which really kind of reframed that whole notion. And The, the concept of scalability and high-touch services actually are complementary to each other, especially if you're very data-centric and you're leveraging that human loop machine learning element. And so uh, Stitch Fix became one of the most, you know, I'd say most successful styling companies in the world. It's a multi-billion dollar company. It's publicly traded today. Uh, probably one of the most highly talented data science teams in San Francisco as well, and pretty big. Um, so I got to be there as data scientist number six, I believe. Uh, there's another guy that I always kind of joke with and we're kind of like competing who is number five. Um, and I ended up leading a data labs team there. So the, the data labs team was looking at the two to five year horizon on where is machine learning and data science going and how can we leverage that uh, for stitch fix today, right? So, you know, what things should we start building now? What should we start considering as, from a technological standpoint uh, to put our service in the right place at that time? 
Um, so a lot of it was focused around natural language processing, computer vision, um, and recommendation engines. And it actually paid off significantly. So like, for example, um, the computer vision component, this was not just data lab, but it was a joint effort between many different teams. Um, we were able to reverse engineer the notion of what style is in clothing, right? So that if you think about that back in 2013, 2014, you know, people would be like, you can't learn style. That's like, that's a human element, right? Mm -hmm. The machine can't do that. And it's like, well, no, you can, if you just kind of, you know, put in the data entry points in the right way so that we can capture, you know, human preferences for clothes. And we ended up generating some of the most successful, uh, I say lines of clothing ever sold on uh, at Stitch Fix because we were able to reverse engineer what people like in terms of style in the future. Um, and then we just had like a little bit of help from the design team to say like, okay, well, this is kind of a weird cut. So let's kind of like turn this a little bit here and there. And after that, it was just amazing. Some of these clothes were in the top five or the top 10, um, you know, best record uh, selling items on record. So it was pretty amazing. Um, then from that, so that was very much an R&D team. Mm -hmm. um, How big was the team? Uh, Hmm? How big was the team? Uh, it was in total six people. So it was uh, myself and then five others. Um, and it was by design that we wanted to keep it small. So you can almost think of it as kind of like um, a unit where, you know, super highly talented people. Uh, some of those people are still there today, but uh, most of those people I would consider on the forefront of machine learning and AI. Like these were very, very talented people, much more talented than I am. And, you know, they were able to really uh, produce some truly innovative concepts um, and even real applicable platforms uh, for Stitch Fix as we grew. Really, really interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing. Um, how did you kind of make that tra initial transition, right? You mentioned that you more or less fell into tech by by accident, by positive mm -hmm. accident, but, um, and, and we will go into the, the machine learning part later, also talking about your startup, of course, but mm -hmm. what were kind of the, the, the moments where you thought, okay, that's actually an environment that you felt comfortable with working for um, besides of course the initial conversation that you had with uh, the, the chief algorithm officer at, at stitch fix kind of what made you go into tech after being in kind of astrophysics and in a completely different space at least from the external so i went through a program called insight data science um so insight data science is probably one of the most successful platforms that takes people that who are PhD level researchers and helps kind of transform their skill sets for industry, especially for startups and bigger companies like Google. Um, and it's, uh, it was like a two and a half month program. It was in, I believe it was in um, Mountain View at that time. I think they're now in San Francisco. Um, and it was like, session group number three or something so it's very early it's very startupy like you go into a room and there's like bare bones tables and then there's this guy named jake Lamka. he's the the founder um saying like i'm gonna make you one of the world's best data scientists and it was kind of a cool concept but at the same time you're like okay is this really real right and then, so i ended up chatting with uh some of the people who graduated from the previous program and they all did phenomenally well they went to facebook they went to google they went to some pretty hot startups um, so I said, let me do that, right? That's a very natural way to, to get into it. And what's be beautiful about that model is that we got exposed um, at the end of our program. It's not a program where they teach you stuff. It's a program where you do your own project and you start to interface with a lot of companies um, and you start to learn about how to rethink your, your way of doing research, right? PhD is about, you know, getting that 99 percentile accuracy, whereas in the industry, they're like, dude, just give me the 70, 80. Don't give me like the, the 99%. We don't need that. Um, And so uh, we got exposed to like 20 different companies uh, by the end of the program. And then we interviewed at most of them. 
And so you kind of had your pick of choice of these amazing companies to work with. Uh, so for me, I was very fortunate to get introduced to data, uh, to the Insight Data Science Program and get connected with a few people who did it before. And, and then I just went in and I had multiple offers by the time that I was going out. Um, and yeah, it was kind of a massive experience. So if anyone who's considering doing that, like if they're still like thinking like, should I do this, should I not? Some people, it's a great program. For some people, it won't be. Um, but I think for most, it's a great program to go through. Yeah, Jake. Jake is amazing. I, I know him well because also a YC alum, and mm -hmm. I chatted with him a couple of times. And I definitely want to like join one of the batches that they're doing, but not as a participant, but just to see so many super smart PhD people that did like astrophysics or whatever before just build interesting stuff. I think it's probably like in terms of just raw IQ, one of the best places to like meet super interesting <laughs> people. So I've already pre-invited myself for for a future batch once uh, once things are happening in person again. But yeah, very uh, interesting yeah. that you that you did that and that this was your uh, one of your pathways into tech because it's literally what they're advertising, right? Mm -hmm. Take super smart people that did PhDs and something, and then just like get like get them into tech, and apparently it worked. It worked really, really well. Uh, I mean, and the nice thing is that when you go through that community, that, through that program, uh, I'm still in contact with Jake all the time. Uh, he's just a wonderful person all around. And he says he has such a great program and he really cares about each and every individual, making sure that everybody has a place to land by the time that they exit the program. Um, but the people that you go into the program with, uh, because all of you are suffering for two and a half months where you get very little sleep, you're going out to you know eat dinners together, you're still on that student budget. Um, and you're in Silicon Valley. So it's, it's it, you know, you're all kind of suffering together, but you're very excited and you become very close to those people. So um, my program, I think, had like 19 people. And I'd say I'm definitely in contact with more than 10 of those people still to this day. And when I was still living in the Valley, uh, we would, uh, there would be a group of us that would rent a house somewhere nearby San Francisco and just go, you know, escape for like a four day weekend and just catch up. So it's a great program. Nice, very interesting. Let's let's uh, skip a couple of steps uh, because mm -hmm. we we could talk about like all of the points in the journey forever. But let's actually go to and jump what you're doing today. Yeah, uh, meaning Origin and Origin is uh, as Max mentioned earlier, a travel startup, a luxury travel startup, if I understand correctly. Maybe you can give us a thirty second pitch of what you're doing, and then we we have a lot of questions that we would like to understand. Okay. Well, the first thing I'd like to, to kind of state is that we're more of a premium travel company. And the reason why I say premium is that uh, luxury means like super, super high-end MVP program stuff. Um, our, our North Star vision is to be able to take a high-touch, you know, uh, concierge travel service and make it broadly applicable to many more people in the world, right? It doesn't mean that you have to have an insane amount of money. But we, we're studying there, almost kind of like how Uber started with like the, the Black Limo service. That was a means to an end. We're doing the same thing. Um, so quick rundown of what we do. Um, so we're a mobile first tech travel company and we provide super personalized human curated trips for our, our customers. So the way to think about it is that let's say that you want to go to a trip on Costa Rica, um, or you, you're looking for a theme experience. Let's say that you're looking for, you're saying, I want to learn how to surf. Um, and here's kind of like my basic preferences about who I am, how I like to travel, um, you know, what was an amazing ex uh, experience that I've had before and what am I looking for in the future? Uh, we really listen to you and we turn that around and make these super, super personalized trips just for you, right? The idea is that you should be in love with what we pre prepare for you on the first shot. 
right? If, if, if it's not the right thing on the first shot, we consider that a failure. And we're, because we're very data-centric, uh, we're able to learn from all our misses really, really quickly. So taking those practices from Stitch Fix, where it's a human-in-the-loop machine learning company, we're doing the exact same thing in the travel industry, right? So if you look at kind of the ecosystem of travel, it's really two different paradigms. There is high-touch services, and there is super scalable companies. And they're kind of opposing forces, right? So the you know, super scalable companies are you know, kind of the search engines like booking.com, Expedia, and that's a self-service model. It's not something that's necessarily personalized to you and making a great trip. If you wanna do that, you go to a travel agent or a travel curator, uh, but that service tends to be very uh, low tech. Like everything you do is on the phone, it's through email, it kind of gets pretty messy. And then when they give you like your trip proposal or the trip you know, detail, it's all in a PDF, right? So it's very, very old fashioned. Um, and I, I tr- you know, I've tried both many, many times, um, but I wanted something that was a sweet spot in the middle. And when I realized what I wanted, uh, I started doing a lot of interviews with people and found that everybody is looking for that sweet spot, but nobody knows where to find it. And I couldn't find it. So I decided to pull the plug and do it myself. Awesome. Interesting. And people might say that you picked a very bad time to start a travel company, right? So lead us a bit through how the last year was, how COVID affected your plans, and then also like how excited are you about the world going back to normal and people traveling more again? Uh, honestly, it couldn't have been a better time. And I'll tell you why. Um, so I started the company back in 2019, late 2019. And the intent of the year 2020 was really just to be low key and just to do a lot of R&D work. So research and development um, and, you know, observe how travel companies are working, especially in the travel agency and, and concierge services. Um, and, you know, kind of peak, you know, identify the challenges of how they make trips, uh, the challenges of communication with the customers on trip, post trip, all those different stages. And then the same went for when we started to make trips for customers. We didn't really have the intent of wanting to sell a trip, but we wanted to get through the exercise of building these trips and seeing what the pain points were for us. And that whole year of 2020 was phenomenal. Like we did dozens of trips, um, actually more than dozens, probably around like 40 to 50 trips at minimum. Um, and, you know, we discovered the pain points. There was like a no tech solution, but we already had an app by the end of the year. And we're taking all those things that we've learned and we're able to now, you know, start building our internal platform for super powering our travel curators with our human loop machine learning uh, tool stack. And then at the same time, making a service and a product, which is our mobile first experience, um, really, really good. Like we can't, you can't mess up a trip. Like if you mess somebody's trip up, they're not coming back, right? Like it's, it's like if you mess up a piece of clothing in a stitch fix box, for example, Somebody will be pretty un- would be unhappy and they kind of feel miffed because they're like, you didn't listen to me. But let's say that we send somebody to a terrible hotel or like a terrible activity, they'll remember that for life, right? And so the, the penalty for screwing up is much, much bigger. And so, you know, the year of 2020 allowed us to really leverage learnings as much as possible so that we can go into 2021, um, you know, with all gears firing. Now, the cool thing is, is that... Um, in terms of the high-end travel industry, uh, it was actually the most resilient in 2020 as well, right? So if you look at the, the entire industry on average, they dropped by more than 70% in terms of travel demand. But if you looked at the you know, premium and luxury travel space, 
Um, and I'll say just premium and upwards. So when I say premium, that's, I just mean everything from premium and up. Um, it only dropped by, I believe, 40%. Right, maybe 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 thirty percent, but it was somewhere between the thirty and forty percent range. So it's it's, it's very resilient. And then uh, what's really exciting now is Isn't that just just to inter just to interrupt because I, I want to clarify what does premium mean? Like what's the what's the average budget like for, so, for a premium premium person that goes on vacation? So the it's actually I would say it's very nebulous. It's not a clear cut definition. Um, but the, the way that we're thinking about it is that premium plus means that you're spending probably about 500 a night, um, at a lodging or more. That's it. Okay. Right. Um, there's other services that will be like, it's 1000 a night. It's, you know, whatever thousands per night. And that just kind of depends on, you know, how high end of a service you're, you're doing. So we'll do everything from 500 and up. Um, and that's what we consider premium. Okay. And 500 so, a night is per person just for the lodging or is it the overall costs for like, like everyone, including the flight, et cetera? Yeah, it's, 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 I would say if you, if you're doing per person, so if you have a couple and it's 500 mm -hmm. per night, then that's fine. Uh, but if you have like a family or like a group of friends, then you, you really start to think about, okay, headcount minimum mm -hmm. 500 per person per night. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. Go ahead. Sorry. But okay, I, no it's, good, it's good for clarification, I think, so people understand what we're talking about, right? So, yeah. And so, again, you know, like I want to make it clear that this is more of a means to an end for us as we start to scale, right? So, once we start to really, really significantly scale with our human loop machine learning, we don't have to look at just premium only travel. We can also start to expand to uh, new markets and much, much bigger adjacent markets, which I'm really excited about. But that's more in the future. Um, so the, uh, what makes me so excited about 2021 and beyond is that we, co we codenamed it as winter melt, right? So there's all this ice that's building up, this travel demand, people are going <laughs> nuts, stuck in the house, cabin fever, they want to get out, right? right? And, you know, the country saying, like, you cannot travel right now. And people are like, screw that, I'm still traveling. Um, people really, really want to travel. People are starting to realize how much traveling and exploring the world is really part of your life, right? And so now with the vaccinations, and they're proven to be super effective, like the Pfizer and the Moderna, they can even handle the variants. People are starting to really kind of find this, this newfound, you know, self-sense of discovery and saying like, screw it, I'm just going to travel as much as I can. Now. I need to get it all out. It's all sitting in my savings. I'm ready to go. Um, so the kind of growth that we're going to see from what bottomed in 2020 to the next few years will be probably the, the fastest growth in travel demand in history, in terms of modern history. Like we're going to see uh, probably compound annual growth rates that have never been witnessed before. And so being a travel company uh, at this point where we didn't care about, you know, revenue stream last year, uh, but this year is perfect. Like it's a wonderful place to be. So as a travel company, I could have, it was accidental. I couldn't have seen COVID-19 coming. Um, we were very, very fortunate in terms of timing. It's interesting to see. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of kind of travel startups that don't exist anymore. And there are some that have more or less also reinvested more and more money to stay alive through that specific period. I, I think you come a bit from a different angle since you kind of focus on the R&D work first. And you probably need to kind of scale up your your DevOps engineering uh, as soon as, as as more scaling happens to be on, on the product itself. But um, super interested to kind of look into one one specific topic related to kind of the early product discovery, which might also be related now, of course, to to the machine lear learning work that you're doing. But I think one step before that, um, you talked about the fact that you more or less founded the company and then you started to kind of do some product discovery work for for a specific period of time where you also try to understand the market better. How yeah. did you make that decision to more or less start the company first and then do 
kind of product discovery work, but also understand how the market works. And and what do you think what has helped you to really come to a point now, uh, which kind of product measurements or product frameworks, product methods have, have you used in order to understand that's kind of how the product should be built. That's kind of the market we're going to follow. Do you have kind of a few nuggets that you want to share with people that are actually building startups that are in their early phases of, of building? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to, to, uh, to expand on that. So I think probably the most important thing when you're doing a startup is, and this is what um, this is what I focused on. And it was hard though, because it's very alluring to kind of just say, oh, here's my vision. I'm going to be completely tunnel vision. I'm not going to see anything on the side and I'm just going to do this, right? Um, the problem with that is that what if you're not creating the right product for the market that you want to cater to, right? And so the most important thing is to be super customer centric and to interview as many people as possible in the travel space or who could be your customer and then really learn about what are their pain points. And you should have really open-ended questions. So I had a, a, a great advisor back in the early days when I was thinking about my startups, a guy named Hitton Shaw um, from Silicon Valley. He did Kiss Metrics. He's got a really cool company called Just FYI right now. Um, and he was more than happy to kind of coach me into it and just said, just focus on this 100%. Just interview as many people that who's who could be a relevant customer, listen to their pain points about travel, open any questions, and then just start to look for commonalities. Um, so I had my own vision of what I wanted, and we're now approaching that, which is great. Um, but hearing the pain points that people had, especially in Silicon Valley, and this is kind of our target audience, it's like the tech people that who love traveling and don't want to stop and they travel frequently. Um, it, it just... It hit me right there. I was like, I see a consistent pattern between somewhere between 50 to 100 people that I interviewed. And so once I saw that, I knew that the pull for that type of service was, was there, right? And so I wanted to make sure that there was the pull. Um, and then the other thing was that once I started coming up with the concept and I shared it with people after the interviews, everyone's like, you're hitting a market gap that doesn't exist. That's exactly what everyone said. I was like, okay, there's a market gap and there's a pull. Um, and then from that point on, um, it was all about just learning as much as possible, observing, right? So once I had that proof of content, like, okay, I'm going to pull the plug. I'm actually going to do this. Um, and then once I was getting into it, I really wanted to make sure that I was going to learn as much as possible about the travel industry, but only to a fault because I don't want to be uh, narrow-minded saying, oh, this is the way that travel is done or in the travel concierge or travel agency service, um, but still think with a fresh mind about how I wanted it, right? And what I think the customers would need. Um, and then from that point on, it was just all about learning and experimentation. So obviously we don't have data points for like, you know, big A-B tests, um, but even in early stage startups, um, it's super, super important to kind of frame everything that you're working on as qualitative tests. So you have a hypothesis about what you want to test on and you're going to push for it. So whenever we have like a new product thing that we're developing, uh, we actually develop um, these qualitative uh, hypotheses about what, what kind of impact it's going to have. We also use user testing so we can actually have people kind of use like a no code version of our services, you know, get input from those users um, and then just kind of see what's going on. Right. And these are much, much harder than A-B tests because maybe tests. Okay. Some A-B tests are incredibly hard, but for the most part, A-B tests are relatively easy. Um, but in terms of the qualitative tests, you have to be very, very mindful, right? These are small number statistics. You really have to think about what they're saying, you know, not being reactive to what they're saying, but kind of looking for commonalities and patterns and then determining what's, what's the next step. And taking that approach, every time we fail, we've learned a lot and therefore we are able to move in the right direction. And so it's a very directed, um, kind of like a Monte Carlo simulation where, you know, there's multiple pockets and we're kind of hitting everywhere, but it's very directed. 
and it's not purely random. And we can learn from that. We can continue pushing forward towards the wins. So that's kind of what I've done uh, from the very early days to where we are today. Interesting. I, I have one question that goes into a bit of a different direction because you have a co-founder now, but yes. if I understand it correctly, you didn't found the company together, right? So you That's brought correct, it yeah. on. You brought it on board a, a bit later. So mm -hmm. can you lead us through the decision of like getting a co-founder, but after you've already founded the company? Because uh, I think that's a, a very interesting move, and I would love to understand it a bit better. Because we know that many of the people that are listening to this also either started with one or two and think about potentially like bringing a co-founder on later, or think about founding now but don't have the right co-founder. So would love to understand that a bit better. Sure. Um, actually, so I did have a, a co-founder when I originally started the company um, mm -hmm. or the concept of it. There was no real company at that point. Um, but my uh, my co-founder, for various reasons, couldn't make it out to the Netherlands when I was moving out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, no hard feelings. We're still super good friends. It's just more of a logistical issue. Um, and then I ended up, you know, doing most of the legwork myself. It was hard. Like being a single founder in my opinion, sucks. It's just not a lot of fun. Like you, you, you get lonely really quick. Uh, you don't have someone that you can bounce ideas off or uh, someone to push you back and say like, you know, Eli, you're doing the wrong thing. You're crazy. You know, let's rethink this. Um, and I knew that I needed someone that who was complementary to my skill sets. Like I didn't want to have another, you know, data scientist or machine learning, you know, person on my team. I wanted someone that who complimented me in terms of like growth, marketing, ops. Um, and, um, It was very happiness. So I had that mindset of what I needed, uh, but I didn't. And, and at that same time, I was also looking for a potential co-founder who's in product, right? So product or options, there are two spaces that I was looking at. Um, and I was talking to a few people and then I just happened to be introduced to this amazing person, Tamar, uh, who's now my co-founder and COO, um, who, was, who came from some amazing companies like Google, Nextdoor, and we were just introduced, right? But I had an open mindset. And so I just happened to chat with them. Uh, we went for a cup of coffee the, you know, the week after this, was, um, and it was amazing. Like, it was just an, an immediate positive resonance. Um, and the ideas that he came up with were very different ideas than I had, but complementary, right? So I was looking for the complementary elements. Um, and it was, a, it was a long interview process um, where we just went back and forward, met a whole bunch of times. Um, You know, had him chat with the team that I already had at that point. Um, and everybody absolutely loved tomorrow from day one. And so I was very lucky to pull him in. But I think the, the piece of advice that I would tell myself uh, if I were to do this again is have an open mind. Don't be so fixed, fixated on one concept or one type of thing that you need as a co-founder. Uh, be open to the thing that you, that you don't have skill sets in. Like, you know, I was thinking like, I need a CPO, I need a CPO. But then I realized, you know, you know, when I met him, I'm like, actually, he's a phenomenal CEO with a, like a massive amount of marketing experience and growth experience. Um, that would be actually maybe even better than a CPO. Um, and it was. It was the right call. And so, you know, keeping that open mindset um, made all the difference. If I didn't have him on board, uh, we'd definitely be set much, much farther back. I love that feedback because I think in, 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 in kind of in the startup environment itself, you often kind of get pushed into certain directions on who to onboard, who to have as a co-founder, especially if you have technical background. There are these kind of certain 
personalities that are displayed in some form or the other that might be wrong for your specific use case. So I think um, very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Uh, a follow-up question um, to, 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 to the fact that you actually moved to Amsterdam, where, of course, if you wouldn't be in Amsterdam, maybe you wouldn't have met your, your co-founder. You've mm-hmm. lived in, in, in San Francisco for a while and, in, in, of course, also in, in the Valley itself. So what, what kind of made you move away from, from San Francisco and the surroundings to, to Europe, which, of course, from a European perspective, uh, we would think it's a, it's a bad decision, right? But what made you kind of move into, into the continent here? So I was looking for two things. Um, so, you know, the Silicon Valley in San Francisco Bay Area is phenomenal for tech startups, right? Um, so if you're looking for a technology-based company, that's a great place to be. But it doesn't, it's not the only place. There's, you know, phenomenal startups that are being created around the world in the tech space. Um, but what I wanted to find was a, a space that was unique in terms of travel and tourism, as well as technology. And so I looked at, you know, several different cities around the world. There was Singapore, there was Sydney, there was Berlin. Um, there was Amsterdam, London, and so forth. And I just kind of ranked, ranked everything in terms of quality of life, uh, in terms of the tech presence in that space, the, the presence of travel and tourism in that space. Um, and Amsterdam just kind of constantly kept coming up in the top three. Um, and so at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? I think Amsterdam is the right place to be. It's super business friendly. I'd say it's probably more friendly for scale-ups than for like a you know, start up from scratch, but they're, they're definitely working on that right now. There's, there's some huge movement that's happening in that space. Um, but uh, given all that, you know, research that I did, I was like, I think Amsterdam is actually the right place to do the startup. Silicon Valley, on the other hand, is great, but it's super expensive, right? You need to get lots of money very quickly to, to build um, a tech company. And I wanted to kind of be more scrappy and be a little bit more patient about learning and making sure that we're doing the right thing before going full force ahead, right? Um, you know, speed and momentum is super important, but I think at the same time, you have to balance that with mindfulness and research. And so that's where I was le- you know, leveraging for. And I think that uh, has paid off quite well. So the one thing that I would be, uh, as a caveat there is, the nice thing about being in Europe is that, you know, it doesn't mean, or in the, in the Netherlands, it doesn't mean that you just have to get VC money or angel money from people in the Netherlands because, you know, you got the Euro. Uh, you can really reach out to anyone in terms of the VC community or the angel community in Europe at large. Um, and it's really, really easy to raise capital when you broaden your horizons. Um, if you keep it very focused just on your country, I think it makes it quite limited. Um, and so taking all that into advantage, um, it worked out really well. And then there was one big surprise. Um, the Netherlands, especially Amsterdam, is becoming home to many, many scale-up companies. Like it's got Uber, it's got um, Databricks. You know, they make, they make uh, they're responsible for Spark. Um, Miro, yeah, Miro yeah. just moved there with a big team, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah, you got loads and loads of tech talent out here, right? You got phenomenal product managers, you got phenomenal engineers and data scientists all in one city and it's a small city, right? Um, so one of the things I was originally worried about was sourcing and it's actually turned out to be a lot easier than I thought. Um, it's definitely not Silicon Valley sourcing in terms of looking for talent, but it's, it's, it's good. So I'm very happy with that. Interesting, yeah. I think Edian is also based in, in Amsterdam, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So they, they also have at least one like really big homegrown tech company, which I think is always really, really important for startup hubs yeah. because then you really have people who have seen it all. And this usually then spawns new startups and just more people moving there. 
because the the difference between Uber moving there and like having a homegrown company is just like the the stage at which the people join and what they see. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah I think Amsterdam is definitely on a on a good way, and the like the whole bureaucracy is definitely in terms of if you compare it to other European countries, definitely much lower. And then taxation also a bit more friendly uh, at some point, which which might also be interesting if you think about that as a as a choice, right? Yep, it is. It's very, very nice, actually. From a tax perspective, it's very business friendly, especially for startups, and they're making it even better. Um, the I think the one challenge I had was when I first came um, was I was looking primarily for like Dutch investors. Um, and then I realized that it's quite a challenge because they, they have the idea I had was just kind of wild. And they're like, well, show me when you have like you know, a million, you know, AOR. I'm like, huh, that's going to take a while. Um, and so, um, you know, but then being able to tap into different communities, you know, across Europe, uh, worked out really well. Now, I will say the angel investment community in Amsterdam is actually surprisingly good. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I've been funded by the Operator Exchange Program or Operator Exchange. So there's like Yellow Prince, I think he's the one that started it with Robert Gall and a few others. Um, it's turned out to be a really big hub of angel investment. And these are all people that who have Silicon Valley experience, right? So some of them are European, some of them are American or different nationalities throughout the world. Um, and many of them become my friends today. Uh, and they've been able to really help my company from the very early stages. Um, and then it's kind of, you know, put me in contact with amazing uh, venture capital groups as well. Yeah, European funds are usually way, way more conservative than US yeah. funds. And even those that say that they are early stage always want traction, which yeah. by definition, like if you really like pre-seed, like you don't have traction in pre-seed. If, if you do pre-seed, you have no idea what you're doing. And you just try to figure out some kind of direction that could potentially lead you to product market fit in the future. And I think most or many pre-seed investors that are not angels, but like pre-seed funds in Europe don't yeah. really understand that. So definitely, I definitely feel you. Uh, but yeah, there are, there's also like very, very good investors and very happy that you found the right ones because mm-hmm. uh, it can be very helpful to have supportive people. I would like to make a really hard cut in the interest of time and ask yeah. you something that I'm personally interested in and probably many people listen as well. When you're building a startup that is in the travel space, so why don't you tell us a bit more, like I have a couple of questions about your personal travel tips. So what are the most common mistakes people are making when they when they travel? What, what do you think is something that usually, I don't know, destroys the trip or like just makes it overall a, a worse experience than it could be? This will be very, uh, what's the word? Uh, this is going to be very much coming through the lens of my own perspective of the world. Um, yeah. So uh, some of the biggest travel snafus that I've run into was just using outdated uh, outdated information about a destination, right? So like I went to Japan, this is before, um, well, internet was around, but it was, you know, this was early days and it was like Lonely Planet was still kind of the big thing. And I ended up going to this island called the Island of Neo. And I picked it up, I was like, oh, Neo, Matrix, that's awesome. Let's see what it is. And I ended up uh, getting stuck on this island where they literally had no business for the last 10 years. And it's just like a place where drunk fishermen go. And so that was like, you know, that was a big, big mistake. And so I've learned very quickly never to use outdated information again. Now it's easier with the internet these days, um, but things can disappear really quickly. And I would definitely say because of COVID-19, a lot of businesses have disappeared. So I'd say for everyone that who's traveling now, be super, super mindful about where you're going in terms of like, you may have an expectation of a restaurant or an activity that you can do, um, you know, that you have to, to book uh, and they may not be there anymore. 
right? So just keep an eye out on that. And that's a hard one to capture as well. Mm. Um, the other one is um, the best travel experience I've had were the ones where I kind of went in with not too much expectations. Just go in with kind of, you know, um, be open to anything and just, just, you know, push yourself into that community or to that culture as deep as you can. Uh, and then just be open to everyone. Like people love, you know, seeing, um, not, I wouldn't say like the tradition, like the, uh, the, the traveler that's kind of, you know, the, or the tourist that everyone's annoyed with, like, you know, the really loud, bad, bad mouth person in the restaurant or a hotel, uh, but they do love the people who really appreciate the culture, the places they're going to, and you make truly great connections. Um, for me, I think the power of travel is making those connections. And so if you go in open-minded, uh, you know, willing to, to make those connections and really, you know, just pay respect to the people that you're going to be seeing, you're going to visit the country and so forth. You're going to make a great experience. The, all the travels I've had that I can still remember to this day are the ones where the strongest connections were made. Okay. Definitely, definitely a couple of good points. Do you have any specific travel gadgets that you like to bring and that you can recommend? Uh, well, this one's going to be very personal to me, which is my surfboard. Uh, I'm a surfer, so uh, I like to surf anywhere I go. Um, it, it can be if I'm going to go to a trip on Iceland, first thing I think of is like, oh, there's good surf there. So I'm going to bring my surfboard with me. Uh, in terms of gadgets. Um, which, board, which board do you have? Which board I have a whole bunch of boards, actually. I have four boards right now. I used to have a whole bunch more in California. Um, but right now I have four boards. I have one long board and three short boards. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, partly the reason why I'm in Costa Rica right now, too. Yeah, I saw, uh, I saw your background picture with like the the, the surfing wave. So uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, this place is definitely surf central. Um, then in terms of other gadgets, um, just headphones is always good. Like if you just need to cancel stuff out and just kind of just you know phase out. Uh, books, I actually like old fashioned books um, just because you start at, when you have a, like a book on the Kindle, for example, it's, you're very objectively focused like you're just going to read through it just get it done and then you go to the next thing which if you have like a real book like and you're bored like you run out of stuff to do you're going to start picking up that book again you're going to start nitpicking at it right and then you're really going to go in depth on what you're reading about and then you know it depends on the book that you have but i like to have a mix of like you know business books uh sci-fi books anything like that or historical books and just kind of just go deep on those subjects so those are kind of the most important things for me. Obviously, a laptop and a phone, but that's I think I think everyone brings that. Yes, surfing is going to bring the the satisfaction. I can definitely relate to that. Uh, so uh, very good choice. As you mentioned, books, and of course, we have a lot of uh, avid uh, kind of readers and people that are interested in in books. Um, what is um, what is kind of one book that has shaped your way in in a different form that you think would also be interesting to to the audience that we have? Man, uh, that's a that's a good question. Shaped my way. Uh, I say probably the book that's really shaped the way I think about startups and just kind of like industry at large is um, Seven Powers. Have you guys heard of Seven Powers? So if I remember yes. correctly, uh, Hamilton Helmer. And I remember being exposed to this book when I was still at Stitch Fix. Um, and ever since then, that was the book that I've always kind of kept in my backpack. Um, when I was working in a different company and just really thinking about like, you know, the, um, the, the business strategies to implement at different times. Um, what I like about it is that it's more of like, if you play chess, right, you, you can't just play a posted stamp solution in a game of chess. Like the, the amount of different scenarios that you're going to run into, is just so big. So you have to have these generalized slash 
dynamic strategies to play to win a game of chess. Um, and that's exactly what Seven Powers is. So Seven Powers is very much about, you know, this, this, you know, this war chest of strategies that you can implement in a very dynamic fashion to get to where you want to be. And ultimately, if you're there, how to protect yourself. Nice. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Like there's some frameworks that are actually helpful, not because they tell you what to do, but because mm -hmm. they inspire you to think about the problem in a certain way. So I usually yeah. like to use these kinds of frameworks to just like have a list in front of me And then, okay, like number four sounds very interesting. I should dive deeper into that. And I think Seven Powers is a very, very good, good book yeah, for that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Do you also have a sci-fi book? Because I am a big sci-fi reader. So um, if you have a, a good one there, I would love to hear it. Uh, the Babaverse. So this oh, is oh yeah. Those yeah, are great. Taylor, I love it. If, if, you, if you're into audio, like audio books, like so from Audible, uh, the narrator is just classic. Like he's just a great narrator. I think narrators and Audible books just make all the difference. Uh, I love it because uh, the notion of taking the human, you know, the human mind and putting it into a computer uh, is a crazy one. But I, I actually do think that that will happen in the future. It's, it's, people think it's like it's a crazy concept today. But if you think about the exponential growth of technology, we're not too far away. Um, just really creative storytelling, very original stories. Um, and yeah, I just can't get enough of it. I think for me, it's nice to think about the future uh, and try and find ways of implementing that into startups. Yeah, it's it's a great series. It's one of the few books I recommend on my blog, actually. So we have, apparently we have similar taste. It's really, awesome. really good. So for everyone who didn't get that, it's The Bobbyverse and it's on, on Audible. Uh, apparently recommended by two people who are here. Uh, Max, have you listened to it? No, I haven't. Um, you should. But it, it, it's a good recommendation. I put it on my list just now. <laughs> yeah. oh, we listen to it. I mean, you can read it, but honestly, the, the audio version is much, much better. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, I think we, we, we covered so much. We are almost at the end of time. So um, I think we kind of, and, and sorry for jumping around a lot of different topics, but I think that's also what... Right. The audience is interested in, of course, Mike and I always kind of like to digest different things in, in the time being. So thanks for for all the kind of the tips, the insight into how you built your startup. Of course, we could have covered much more of your machine learning experience. Maybe there's room for episode two in in a few mm -hmm. months or um, whenever there's time for it. So thanks so much for for being on the show. And we much, much appreciate your time. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Lots of fun. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Safe travels. Thanks. You too. Ciao.